earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Are you driving? Are you at home listening? Or on your mobile device? Catching the podcast? Well, friends, today I'm starting a new topic called Touching Others with Our Faith. Along the way, I'll share some natural and creative ways we can reach out to the people in our circles of relationships or spheres of influence. So part one will be looking with Jesus' eyes. Well, around the middle of the 4th century BC, King Xerxes, Persia's emperor, calls it a day and goes to bed. Never did a man have such means to help him fall asleep. He has servants to fan away the heat, musicians to strum away the boredom, a harem for companionship, endless wine to drink himself into oblivion. So why does he toss and turn? Who knows? Maybe a hard day at the office? A tad extra spice in the dinner soup? Yet Esther 6.1 says, That night the king could not sleep. Instead of calling for his pipe, bowl, and three fiddlers, he decides to be read to from the very chronicles of his reign, guaranteed to make anyone nod off. It must have been the insomniac's guide to good reading. As the reader drones on, an obscure statement sets Xerxes' mind to think a certain way. It prepares him for an empire-altering request his wife Esther will make the next day. It tips his mental scales so that he grants Esther's request. And by granting it, the Jewish people are spared from annihilation. A particular people group will be rescued. Centuries later, from this people group comes a young boy who grows up and dies for the sins of the world, all because the king could not sleep. Friends, I'd like to share with you a creative retelling of the Esther story, perched in a modern setting, narrated by Johnny Erickson Tata. In her book, When God Weeps, in this section she delves into how God runs the world, how he arranges natural events to occur at specific times to further his ends. In other words, they're God-planned coincidences. Someone once called them God-incidences. Pretty cool, huh? Johnny brings this closer to home for us when she reminds us that our life is no exception to God's delight in arranging coincidences. She then creates this following scenario for us. Consider your big 4th of July picnic. You live near Philadelphia, so it's only right to eat a burger in Ben Franklin's honor. After all, the sun is warm, the grill is working, the grass is mowed for softball, and everyone's bringing a jello salad. 
but unknown to you? God wants it to rain. He wants your friends to go home. He wants your brother-in-law, Ed, to help you carry the grill into the garage where you two will lean against the car listening to the downpour. And it's there you will have a long conversation leading to spiritual things, eventually leading to Ed's conversion. Your brother-in-law has been thinking about God lately, but he's a private man, hesitant to broach personal subjects, and needs an ideal time and setting. So how does God pull this off? Miracle rain out of nowhere? Something that baffles AccuWeather and brings the X-File team in to investigate? No. While it's still warm in your backyard, five miles above, the air is starting to cool. A miracle? No. It's a polar jet stream bringing colder air from the northwest. Dry and heavy, this air will drop, shoving the steamy air in your backyard upward, Rising, it will cool, and its water vapor becomes clouds. About three miles up, those clouds will make ice crystals. Watch out! Ice crystals get bloated from eating up nearby water molecules, too fat to keep floating, so they start falling as snow. But it's summertime! By the time they land in your infield, it's raining. Bye, Smiths! So long, Wilsons. It was fun while it lasted. Uh, sure, Ed, I could use some help carrying this grill into the garage. Yet no one long, uh, not long ago, the jet stream was 200 miles north. What shot it in your way this particular weekend? Something that happened three days ago. A jet stream disturbance over the Canadian Rockies. A disturbance just right to send things toward Philadelphia. And to get the disturbance just right? A precise path of that jet stream over the mountain. And to achieve that precise path? A complicated series of atmospheric twists from the Earth's rotation and the proper Pacific Ocean water temperature a day earlier. Yet the temperature was being affected back in April when the right amount of cloud cover was letting in the right amount of sunlight. 6,000 miles away and four years earlier, a volcano spewed ashes into the atmosphere that affected last April's cloud cover. God's been thinking about your brother-in-law for a long time. Of course, surefire rain doesn't guarantee that Ed will show up at the picnic. He's been looking forward to 18 holes today. But his golfing buddy's wife caught an ad this morning about the red, white, and blue sale at Harry's Lawn and Garden and immediately swore that her husband had seen his last hot meal until he gets his butt over there and buys that lovely comfo lawn furniture that promises easy assembly in minutes. So today God planted thoughts in a wife's mind and allowed advertisers to stretch the truth about assembly required by about, oh, say, five and a half hours in addition to lining up nature in advance. And God is doing the same thing with people all over who need some rain or sunshine to further his work in their lives. Totally natural, mind-bogglingly complicated. 
Friends, all this activity of God, I believe, flows out of two basic desires in the Lord's heart. First, his desire that none should perish. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is patient toward us, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Second, his desire to use us to fulfill his first desire. In Acts 1.8, Jesus says, You, his disciples, shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. You see, friends, Jesus gave us a model or a template, if you will, a way to view our world in manageable portions. And our world equals the world in which we each live, the world around each of us as we go through our daily lives and routines. So I propose to you, friends, that we each have our own Jerusalem, our own Judea, our own Samaria, and our own remotest part of the earth. And this is why our new series is called Touching Others with Our Faith. On this journey, we'll take a biblical and practical look at how we Christ followers can naturally intersect the lives of the people around us by being in tune to the natural settings or groupings that God has placed us in in respect to these people. Imagine a series of circles with the same center from the smallest out to six more circles. Picture a rock dropped into a still lake and its rippling effect. You might even picture a dartboard or a bullseye target that archers use. And imagine that you're in dead center, the imaginary dot or smallest circle, so to speak. The first ring outward represents your immediate family. The second ring from that represents your relatives or extended family. The third ring out is your close friends. The fourth ring out becomes your neighbors, co-workers, and or business contacts. The fifth ring out is your acquaintances. And the sixth ring out is person X. In other words, that stranger you encounter unexpectedly or randomly by an unplanned experience. So let's take the biblical template in Acts 1.8 and superimpose it on these six groupings, okay? Here's what we'll get. Our Jerusalem is our immediate family and relatives. Our Judea then becomes our friends, neighbors, and work or business contacts. Our Samaria then becomes our acquaintances. And finally, our remotest part of the earth becomes strangers. One respected Bible teacher, Dr. Warren Wearsby, made an incredible statement that I would like to borrow to help us view the world of people around us and our ministry to them. He said, Ministry takes place when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels to the glory of God. Notice the four spokes to this ministry wheel. First, divine resources. Second, meet human needs. Third, through loving channels. And fourth, to the glory of God. Friends, keep these four spokes fresh in your mind as we look at an encounter Jesus had in John chapter 4. This is Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. The opening few verses set the stage, and we'll focus on verses 4 through 42. But verse 3 says, So he, Jesus, left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. 
Now, he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the journey, sat by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, "'Will you give me a drink?' His disciples had gone into town for food. The Samaritan woman said, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Or this may be understood as, Jews do not use dishes Samaritans have used. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I am the one speaking to you. Just then, Jesus' disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward Jesus. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. 
Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Now, friends, Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman reveals a lot about how he approaches people, converses with them, and how he looks at or sees them. And so he provides a template for us. Let's observe some characteristics Jesus exhibited. First, he makes himself available. He went to where the woman was. In other words, he didn't send her an invitation to come and visit him at his synagogue. Second, he is candid yet tactful. To me, this demonstrates respect. Third, he sees beyond the immediate need. Notice, friends, that Jesus did this. He perceives the true need, but uses the immediate need as a stepping stone to draw a person to see their true need. Remember our title? Looking with Jesus' eyes. This is a common pattern for Jesus. In other instances, he meets a person's immediate physical need, food, healing, etc., as a way of drawing them to recognize and see their true spiritual need. Friends, in looking or seeing with Jesus' eyes, we're able to see others' true spiritual needs. Fourth, He asks questions to draw out answers. Notice Jesus doesn't just make truth declarations. Early in verse 7, Jesus' question to the Samaritan woman is, Will you give me a drink? Fifth, he shows patience. Friends, Jesus doesn't cut to the quick until verse 25. There's some 15 verses of back-and-forth dialogue that is candid and poignant, but it's also respectful and keeps her engaged. Sixth and lastly, he appeals to belief. Jesus recognizes stepping stones to belief. He doesn't expect it the whole enchilada right at the outset. Friends, let's listen in again to the progression of faith this woman woman exhibited during her conversation with Jesus and what took place for her to recognize him as the Messiah, not only Messiah of the Jews, but of the Samaritans and of the world. First, in verse 9, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Can't you just hear and feel the sharp division and animosity she recognizes between them? After all, we're clued in in the very next verse, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Second, in verse 11, she addresses Jesus with, Sir, this is the Greek word for Lord, but it doubles as a term of respect. It often simply means sir, depending on context. Third, in verse 19, she declares to Jesus, You must be a prophet. After all, he just told her all her sins without any prior knowledge. And fourth, in verse 29, she wonders, Can this be the Messiah? 
Friends, the inference here is that being Messiah, Jesus is Savior. Notice how this account ends, and verse 42 summarizes the townspeople's response to this woman. We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. You see, friends, this concluding declaration tells us why Jesus had to go through Samaria. As verse 4 introduces his journey to us, Jesus had to correct and heal his disciples' spiritual myopia. Otherwise, how would they ever turn the world upside down? They hated Samaritans. All they could see was the racial hatred between them. Even Jesus' disciples at this stage could not look with Jesus' eyes. They were unable to see people as Jesus saw them, ripe for the gospel and ripe for salvation, people God loved. The clue for this is found in verse 35, where Jesus parallels the spiritual harvest about to take place with the natural wheat harvest. When the townspeople came out to see Jesus at the woman's bidding, he said to his disciples, Open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Now, friends, some of our English translations lose this connection by using the word ripe. The Greek word is really white. In other words, white for harvest. Why would Jesus say this? Well, the vital cultural context informs us that people in that hot climate often wore white turbans and white robe-type clothes. Jesus looked with eyes of a Savior and saw the spiritual harvest coming out to him and his disciples. If these disciples were to become witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the remotest part of the earth, they'd better become quick studies of their rabbi and his care for the lost, regardless of racial makeup. Jesus knew how to look at people, and after Jesus looked at people, his look became his stepping stone to doing. Friends, many years ago, there was the WWJD campaign. What would Jesus do? I'll admit it, I bought a bracelet. You know what? We can't answer that question properly unless we become very familiar with what Jesus actually did within the context of his own surroundings. We better spend sufficient time in the Gospels learning what Jesus did before we sound off and cavalierly spout, what would Jesus do? Only then have we earned the right to speculate what Jesus might do in our modern surroundings, and then, with the Spirit's leading, go and do likewise. The original inspiration came from 1 Peter 2.21 and the book In His Steps. <clears throat> in other words, we should walk in Jesus' steps and do what Jesus would do. This is the origin of that question. And I've already chimed in on this earlier, but I'd like to share the context of 1 Peter 2.21. Verses 19 and 20 say, It is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it you credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and enduring it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. 
in his steps. Interesting, huh? Peter intended to instruct his flock that walking in Jesus' steps could mean suffering in Jesus' steps and not just doing what Jesus would do. Well, that was for free. And I don't want to get off track from today's lesson. John 4 is a terrific chapter for studying Jesus' ways with people he encountered, how he conversed with them, how he led them to see just who he was and what his mission was. This is just one of several accounts where Jesus engages a person or a group of people and we see him in action, so to speak. <clears throat> we see how he sees and we get to look as he looks. Friends, if we really want to touch others with our faith, we must become students of people. We must be willing to go to them and learn what makes people tick before we pounce on them with the gospel. Jesus was the quintessential example of an expert observer. We too must be willing to observe people and engage them in their own settings and then ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate us as to what earthly bridges we can build to share the gospel. Amen. Amen. Well, we're at the end of today's program. I hope our new journey into touching others with our faith is an eye-opening introduction to what's ahead for us in the next several weeks. Let's continue to pray for people around us that need Jesus, and let's observe them more carefully, seeking the Holy Spirit's guidance on how to engage them in conversations. Today's broadcast will close with an email where you may write me. Please also consider joining the support team. I'll give you the details. Thanks to you who support keeps this program on the air. Please also remember that the podcasts are available at faithtalk1360.com. Just search for local program podcasts. Thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.